The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mindful Matters podcast. My name is Elaine Clark, and this is a place for conversations that matter. And I love learning from people about their stories and how they find healing. And if you listen to the show, you know that I'm committed to introducing you to people who have stories of healing and who are making an impact in the world. And my guest today is one of those people. I've been wanting to have her on the show for a while now, and so I'm so grateful to have her here. Today, my guest is Dr. Judith Grizel, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. And she's recognized as a renowned behavioral neuroscientist and a recovering addict. And in her TED Talk, which is where I first discovered her, she takes us through her own personal journey of addiction and sobriety. And she highlights the neuroscience of addiction and how substances can alter our brain. These are some of the topics that we get into in today's episode. I am so thrilled to welcome her here on the show. Judy, thank you so much for making the time today. You're welcome. I'm really happy to be here, Elaine. It is such a privilege to speak with you today. I'm also really looking forward to seeing you live at the Trauma and Addictions Conference in Las Vegas. I'll be there. Great. And yeah, I'm really excited for that. So I, I want to start by saying your book, Never Enough, is so well done. It's extremely honest and informative. It's engaging and also so inspiring for anyone struggling with addiction. And not only do you have a summary of what you've learned as a researcher studying you know, neuroscience of addiction, but you thread your own personal experiences throughout the book. And you open the book by describing your experience with substance in your early teens. And I'm wondering if we can start there today. Sure. Yeah. It's funny. I wrote the beginning of the book last. My, um, my plan, of course, was to illustrate the neuroscience with my own experience because I understand, you know, can be dry. And really the way I got into neuroscience was because I wanted to understand what was up with my own brain. Um, but anyway, I wrote that last and it turned out to be kind of the hardest part to write, even though I know my own story, it's, um, it's still painful to think about it. I, I used all the drugs I could get my hands on from about the time I started, which was right around my 13th birthday until I ended up in a treatment center at 23. And in those 10 years, um, you know, I had some fun. I had a lot of adventures, but I had a lot of disasters or really near disasters and um, sad times too. I, I was homeless for a while. I had been, I got kicked out of three schools and um, the first one in 10th grade and then two colleges took me seven years finally to get my 
uh, bachelor's degree after I got clean, I, um, I didn't like myself at all. I had hepatitis. Um, I was fired from, you know, a bunch of terrible jobs and, uh, it was just a, a tough time. So I, I, you know, I got kind of what I wanted when I first started using, I thought, I love this. I just want to, you know, go as far as I can with as much as I can. And I, the title of the book is never enough because I basically could never get enough. And as a result of that, I ended up living in a pretty small, dark place and, um, kind of mistakenly got to a treatment center. This was in the 1980s. And I, I think it's hilarious now because I had never heard of treatment and I thought it was going to be something like a spa, which I thought I deserved. So Judy, I'm so curious, at what point did you say, you know, something has to change? At what point did you realize that you needed to make a change in your life? Well, I, it's funny because I, I really think I like change now. I kind of embrace it. I've done a few big changes in my life since getting sober, but I did not see recovery coming. I, I actually, um, didn't really want to change except that, as I said, I, I kind of ended up in a treatment center. So, you know, I think the way it usually goes is that people realize things are terrible, and then they get willing to change. That process occurred for me after I uh, got sober and over a period of at least a year. So I, the one thing I did have going for me, even though I didn't have much willingness, was curiosity. And I guess while I was in treatment, which I was sort of duped into, and it was far away from anything I knew, so I was kind of stuck there. I um, I got a little scared, and uh, actually, I got more than a little scared. I got very scared by uh, the many, many close calls that I had, and I could sort of, without the you know veins full of drugs. I could sort of see the trajectory, which I really hadn't been able to see. I knew my life was kind of a mess, but I didn't actually attribute it to my drug use. I, I thought, like most of us, I guess, that the drugs were the solution to my problems, not the cause. And while they weren't the only cause, it turns out they were the main cause. So when I didn't have them for a while, I got scared. And that, uh, you know, was kind of a new feeling because I had been so numb for so long that I really didn't, um, I wasn't affected by much, but I, while sitting, you know, in this hospital-like treatment center in Minnesota, I did realize that things weren't going well at all. And um, that gave me I guess just a tiny smidge of willingness, but it was really motivated or catalyzed primarily by curiosity because I thought, well, um, if I have a disease that's killing me and it looks like that could be true, um, I ought to be able to 
cure my disease because that's what people do with diseases, don't they? They try to cure them all the time. And so I uh, somehow thought I would fix it and then I would be able to use. So really, I um, and I, I can remember thinking that it was going to take me about seven years. I don't know why exactly, but um, I wasn't willing to commit to sobriety at that point for any appreciable amount of time. But I thought I had, I, I figured I'd used addictively for about seven years, seven years clean and sober should kind of um, wipe the slate clean and give me the time I need to solve addiction. And I really thought, and actually many neuroscientists at the time thought that, which I was not one of yet, but anyway, um, that it was going to be fairly simple. There might be a gene or some kind of messed up neurotransmitter or something that I could figure out and then fix and then use because my first love was really getting high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that you say is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's choice. And I love this. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that for us. I, I would love to. It's it's a, um, a kind of a big theme in my life, even before I started using. Um, but I am I'm someone who values freedom a lot. I, I just think it is among my most precious commodities, the, the freedom. And I realize, as I say that, that many people in the world can't say that. So I'm not cavalier about it. But I think my appreciation for free choice and um, my position in the Western world um, combine to, to make it seem to me like this was a value worth dying for. And so it's funny because when I first started using, I thought I was really using my freedom. You know, don't tell me what to do. I am going to do what I want to do. And as a result of really getting everything exactly the way I wanted for about 10 years, I almost died. And then I felt like when I was getting sober and giving up um, using, that I was giving up my freedom. And that turned out to be so, so wrong. It's, uh, it's kind of uh, blows my mind today. And I, I think I'm still exploring this. And many people have said wise things for centuries about the relationship between responsibility and freedom. But I find that um, I do have an obligation to myself, to my headspace, to my feelings, to my actions, uh, to do those that honor my fullest self. And that is exactly the antithesis of the way I was when I was using. So all my choices, all my actions, most of my feelings and thoughts were driven by chemicals that I took. Right. And, you know, I, something I'm, I've been thinking about a lot is that we often, we ask the question, you know, why the addiction? But the question that we should really be asking is why the pain? And I was reading recently that 
the first time for first time users of heroin, um, they describe the experience as if it feels like a warm, soft hug. And this makes me wonder, you know, again, this question we should be asking is what are what are these people getting from the addiction and not what's wrong with the addiction? So, for example, the feeling of peace or control or a sense of calm, you know, temporary calm. You know, what are these qualities? What are the qualities missing from their lives? And then why? Why do they turn to the addiction? And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that from your experiences of maybe why you were choosing to turn to substance. Yeah, well, I think as you suggested, uh, these drugs work so well. Mm -hmm. You know, I can release endorphins with social interactions, with exercise, with chocolate, but nowhere near uh, what I would get if I was shooting heroin or fentanyl, you know, I mean, it's just not a contest. So um, I think we all have pain and, you know, there's all kinds of insults to living. And uh, at least for me, when I, I first, my, the first time I got drunk, and I think this is fairly typical, but the first time I got drunk, I realized it was an antidote to the pain that I felt, to the anxiety, the alienation, insecurity. You know, I was a teenager, kind of, you know, not comfortable in my own skin at all. And it's funny because I didn't quite realize how uncomfortable I was until I got drunk. And then I thought, wow, this is so much better. But um, so I think it's they're compelling, you know, because they're pharmacological tools that are really brilliant at doing the, the one thing, which is um, changing our state. And, you know, if we can change our state from suffering to a warm blanket, it, obviously that's compelling. I think um, going back to the choice question, What's interesting, I, I was just uh, thinking about this the other day. I was, um, I might have been sober like two or three years, and I had uh, some guy who I was dating, you know, not really seriously, but my ego was definitely wrapped up in it, and um, it got crushed. You know, he, he kind of was a jerk and um, hurt my feelings, but more than that hurt my pride. And I was just furious. And I was also about, I don't know, 800 miles away from them. And I was in a, a, a sort of a old crumbling apartment in Portland, Oregon, and uh, it was pouring rain. And I realized this betrayal and I was just seeking like some way to make it feel better, to make it feel better. And so I, you know, thought, well, I can smoke some cigarettes because that was, you know, still sort of on the table, um, but they weren't really working and it was pouring. So I couldn't go out and run up the trails or anything. And um, finally, kind of as a last resort, and I was pissed about it, I went and sat still, which was, you know, harder for me than it would have been to swim across the Willamette River, you know, 
I mm-hmm. just am not that way to sit with my discomfort. And what happened was so interesting to me. It's it right at the heart of your question. You know, I don't know if it was 50 seconds later or 50 minutes later or somewhere in between, but at some point, I realized that the pain I was in was this veneer. It was nothing really substantial. And underneath that was a kind of um, peace and solace that it felt better than a warm blanket, actually. It felt like I was a, I was the warm blanket, you know, the warmth coming from inside me. And, um, and then I got dumped, you know, several more times in my life. And overall, I would say I'm really grateful for all of that heartache because I have learned that I'm bigger than it. And I think that is, that is choice. That is freedom. Like I can face things. What a, what a um, thrill that is. Like it's, it's not easy and it's not fun usually or often, but it's, definitely exhilarating it's definitely empowering yeah i love that that's i feel like so many people can relate to you know the story you're sharing there and even you know myself i I find that uh having gone through some pretty big heartbreaks um when i look back on when i've just allowed myself to feel the pain just on the other side of that pain is a sense of freedom as you were saying and this feeling of space again and clarity and it's um uh, my nephew actually once was telling me that uh he he said to me one day he's like did you know that when buffaloes they see a storm they run right towards the storm and i couldn't help but think to myself you know if we were to if we just do that with our pain you know if can we find a way to run right towards that pain instead of turning away from it and turning to substance. I think that that's a really powerful experience that uh, a lot of us, we don't know about. Like, we don't know how to feel our pain. Um, and I think it's R.D. Ling, um, a psychiatrist, who said that the three things people are afraid of are death, other people, and their own mind. Um, which, you know, any heartbreak, I think, <laughs> dealing with the mind, I think, during a heartbreak is a really challenging experience. Yeah, exactly. I love the story about the buffalo, but the the opportunity to occupy my own mind is a kind of a journey of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time trying to escape my mind and, you know, got nowhere fast. So, um yeah, I think that's exactly what I mean. I, I like, uh, I really appreciate every day that I can, that I can exercise my freedom. Yeah. In the introduction of your book, and I'll quote you here, you say, my hope is that sharing this information might help loved ones, caregivers, and crafters of public policy make more informed choices. Perhaps this understanding may even help the afflicted ones themselves, because it's quite clear to me that the solution isn't coming in a pill. This, I feel, is so important. I want to talk a little bit about this, this idea of that the solution isn't in a pill. Well, as a scientist, I have to say that it may. I don't 
I wouldn't bet on it. My look at the brain, at the complexity of the natural world, at the progress of science makes me think or hypothesize that um, this is not the way we're going to solve the addiction pandemic. I do, I do think that um, one piece of evidence in favor of my argument is that it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we've got lots and lots of science. Now, I am a huge fan of science. I think it's very important. And what research has taught me, mine and other people's research, is that the brain does not operate in a vacuum. It's so connected. It's. I was just reading this morning. It's intimately, wildly connected with our microbiome. Depression is probably largely due to bacteria in our gut and how they activate the immune system. Um, and it's also related to how we sleep and our social contacts and our early experiences with our parents, you know, and our genetics and our neurochemistry, of course. But I think it's impossible um, to extract a single, you know, smoking gun. And if we can't do that for something like depression or addiction, then how would we suppose to fix it? Yeah. So, you know, you could probably, I think I said somewhere and it was kind of flip, but, you know, you could do... Um, they're doing deep brain stimulation right now for um, so some addicts who have usually overdosed several times, not able to get sober, are begging to have electrodes uh, placed, you know, four inches down into their brain. So these are not just like on the surface here, but they're going way down there. And, uh, you know, the electricity turned on. So sending a little current down there to try to alleviate their drive to use. Um, so we could go back to the talk about freedom here. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, they're maybe choosing to do that if they can make a choice. But um, I, think, I think it's a kind of a sad um, commentary on where we are that this is the you know, state of the art seeking, we're going to have deep brain stimulation. So, you know, the pills mostly haven't worked and there's still new pills being developed every week. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a big problem. I, I totally get that. But uh, I think that treatment is effective. It is a really long-term thing. I think this is the part that's missed. Addiction develops over time mm. as the brain learns and it kind of has to unlearn. And that's harder in a way. Unlearning is harder than learning for sure. So I think just support and time, maybe some medicine, maybe a little electricity, but uh, I do not think there's going to be a silver bullet now. Yeah. I, I want to spend some time talking about recovery because I think this is really important. And I do want to touch on, you know, why we develop addictions. I also want to talk a bit about, you know, what makes us more vulnerable? Why are some people more addicted than others? But in, in the context of recovery, 
Um, I'm not a parent yet, although I'm really looking forward to being one. One of the biggest fears I have around parenting is the worry of substance use and abuse. And I love that you share some of your stories of your parents in the book and how your father reached out to you at a really dark time in your life, which I think speaks to the importance of human connection in recovery and this idea of isolation and how harmful it can be. There seems to be this sort of cyclical nature in that isolation causes addiction and addiction causes isolation. And I think, again, this is such an important conversation around the topic of recovery. What can you say about this? Well, well, there's so much to say about this. Um, I do think it's a scary time to be a parent. I've just almost finished raising three teenagers and um, my last one's having a birthday in October, it's oh, 20. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard and it's definitely scary. And I don't envy my parents' position at all. Um, and, I, and I envy even less parents today because there are much more potent drugs on the street than there were when I was ripping and roaring. So I think it is a hard time. Mm -hmm. um, and I also just want to give a little nod to what I know of uh, adolescent development, and that is that the parents are really not supposed to be the primary influence during adolescence. It's unfortunate, mm -hmm. but because they're not supposed to be, they're really not able to be. And here's a fun uh, piece of research I read recently. It turns out that a kid's favorite voice, and you can tell this by their brain response, like in an fMRI, their favorite voice until they hit puberty is their mother's. Oh yeah. Or their primary caregiver, it's usually the mother, but it could be any primary caregiver, I'm sure. So they're just mm -hmm. tuned to that. At puberty, it switches. So now it's their least favorite voice in the universe is their mother's. And wow. I think people will resonate with that. I certainly could. It's like flipping a switch and it, it does happen seemingly overnight, but that's kind of by design because mm -hmm. mostly her job is done or their job is done. And, you know, they've got to go out, explore things on their own, find peers. And this is a dangerous, a dangerous time. However, I think where parents and every person on the planet can play a positive um, role is by showing up and telling their truth. So one thing that was hard for me with my kids was they just went from sweet and kind of fun to major jerks. You know, They were so hard to be around. I could, I would talk to a friend and I would say, you know, they're just so prickly. It's awful. I just, I want to go in my room and close the door and, or not really engage because it's no fun. And um, it's not that fun, or at least it wasn't for me. Um, but what uh, I learned to do was just go sit in the room, sometimes on the same piece of furniture near them and not say anything. Mm. And just to be there, because that was about the best I could do with a 15-year-old. And, you know, I think what would happen, and probably parents know this, is that um, a lot of times there would be a sort of um, 
inexplicable argument, you know, it, it comes out of nowhere. I can remember many times where, you know, there was no in external thing. It just elicited, you know, I think my presence just elicited, you know, this is my least favorite voice in the world. Um, but then there would be these moments where uh, the walls would for some reason come down. And because I happened to be sitting there, I might get a story about the day or something interesting they were reading or a piece of music someone liked. And those were ways to just kind of keep the threads between us, you know, intact. And, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll know for sure soon, but um, I think it looks like all three of them have come through and now we have adult relationships. And why should we think this is easy? You know, they, they're, our relationship has got to change. I was just having a conversation with my mother who's in her eighties, I'm nearly 60. And um, I said, you know, mom, your job's done. Mm. Let's be friends. I'm, I'm pleased to say I have such a great friendship with my mom. She's almost my best friend. It's, it's amazing. But, uh, but growing up, unfortunately, you know, someone really close to me, my sibling, I remember seeing a very sort of clear before and after of um, before and after marijuana use, essentially in early teenage years. And I, I remember, you know, my mom having such a hard time navigating this. And I think there are, there are a lot of parents out there that are struggling to navigate, you know, supporting their children through substance abuse. And I, I'm just curious if you have anything to say to that or, you know, anything to share about how to do that. Well, I, I first want to acknowledge that it is really messy and hard. And yeah. I don't think I have an easy solution. Um, and I don't, you know, I think for those of us that make it through, uh, you know, we really can't point to a particular thing. So it's not like there is, you know, oh, do this and this will happen. I think it is um, a very mysterious and complex and dark time for a lot of people. Um, but I'll just say, I'll, I just, I'll share for what it's worth. This is one view. Um, my parents, when I came home, I was very full of myself. I had just about to fail out of my second. No, this was my first college, just about to fail out of my first college. And um, I told them, you know, I liked smoking weed and I was going to smoke weed and they couldn't do anything about it. And I don't, it seemed like they looked right at me and said, and I don't know if it was quite this quick, but it might've been said, uh, well, we can't stop you, but uh, we're not supporting you. Mm. And that's when I left home and went to the Howard Johnson's with uh, two handles of vodka and a blender <laughs> and some mm -hmm. fruit juice. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous, but anyway. Um, so I had a child who not nearly as fresh of a way, but basically was saying a similar thing. And uh, I, you know, as I said before, there's, it's, it's a more dangerous time. So it's, we're really in a bind here. But I said, you know, well, you're 18, you clearly can do whatever you want, but I'm not paying your tuition if you test positive. Mm. And um, this is like an amazing 
technological advance and I feel like a little, uh, you know, like I, I, you know, it was just a, a choice that I made, um, my husband and I made together. But I, I said, you know, you can do what you want, but it's not, you know, I'm not footing the bill. And it was probably me projecting my experience in college where I barely went to class and also, you know, the tuition's gone up since then. So yeah. anyway, my, my child looked at me and uh, thought for a moment and said, I don't like that at all, but I guess it seems fair. Hmm. And I said, uh, we'll reevaluate, you know, I don't think it's a permanent thing. And really as a neuroscientist, not as a parent, I think that the closer a person can get to 21 before they pick up uh, addictive drugs, at least on a regular basis, the more protected they are from developing addiction. So this child happens to know all the neuroscience too and uh, agreed and, um, you know, Things are going well. I think this is a, you know, it's awkward though to say, I mean, you know, here, pee in this cup for yeah. me. I love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's also, I guess, reflects the fact that it's not easy. And I don't know that there's any smooth, graceful way to go through it. And, and maybe with kids, like you who, you know, have a mother as a best friend and never maybe had uh, the kind of relationship that I'm describing with either me and my mom or some of my kids and me. Um, I think for, for those of us like this, it, it, it's funny because what my kid said to me later was, and she, not quite like this, but you know, it's kind of a guardrail yeah. And there's a lot of pressure. And I just say, no, I don't want any because my parents test me. And everybody turns and looks, you know, like, what? Your parents, you know, what? And, uh, but it's kind of, um, I think going back to the freedom thing, in a way, there's more freedom there because this is probably going to sound uh, disingenuous, but. Um, the kid knows they're welcome to hitchhike to Florida, but not on my dime. Yeah, I think that's great. I think the education piece, I think, is very important. And I love in your TED Talk, you walk us through some of the neuroscience and the brain changes uh, associated, especially with marijuana. But just coming back to the point there where you were talking about how uh, you know substance use disorders um, it are often associated with those who begin using before 18 years old. And, um, you know, there's a, I think it's a one in fourth chance of developing an alcohol use disorder if someone starts drinking before 18. Um, but if they start drinking after 21, there's a one in 25 chance. I think that's really interesting. And that education piece, I think is so important for children as well as for parents, but my question for you is how do we, how can we stop children from gaining access to these substances before 21 years old? I don't think there's any way to stop them from gaining access. Right. Yeah. I think access is, uh, I mean, it's everywhere. 
and yeah. and it's not the weed that I smoke that's everywhere. It's it's so much more, and therefore, more um, if it's more potent, it is more likely to result in addiction and you know the kind of changes to the brain that lead to addiction and also depression and anxiety. So um, it is a, a minefield, I think. I guess um, if we can't stop that though, and we really probably would be uh, daydreaming if we thought we could say, you know, don't do this because I of all people know that that's not gonna be a good strategy. One thing I try, and it didn't exactly work with um, my kids or my students, I don't think, but I do try to get this out. And I, and I really do believe it. I'm not anti-drug. In fact, my husband is not, uh, it doesn't have any problems with substances. And I, um, you know, it's funny, he doesn't really take advantage of that as much as I would, obviously. But um, I think it's a, a nice way to live where, again, you could take or leave it. You know, you might decide on this day, hey, let's smoke a joint. I'm, you know, hanging out at the beach and throwing a Frisbee. That seems so fun. Um, so I'm all for that. And if um, we want to maximize the likelihood of that kind of um, dabbling that could enhance our lives, then the way to do it, the single best way to do it is to wait until the brain is mature. The longer you wait, the less likely it is. And this is for the really simple reason that kids learn everything better than adults and better, quicker, faster, stronger. And so, you know, a 15 year old, one experience and they got it, you know, I'm exaggerating yeah. a little, but you know, a 30 year old, it, it take a lot more hammering to get that lesson home and result in addiction. So I think uh, this is a kind of, um, you know, secret that's underappreciated because wouldn't it be great to have a world in which more people had the choice to use or not use? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. And I want to walk through some of the neuroscience and the brain changes. I feel like that's something that a lot of people would be really interested to hear about. Uh, tell us more. Elaine, the brain adapts to all mind-altering chemicals by producing the exact opposite effect. If the very first time you drink alcohol or you take an opiate, your brain begins changing the um, genes and the structures and the functions of circuits to counteract that uh, drug. It does that because, unfortunately, it doesn't like to be wasted. It likes to be uh, alert and kind of in the same state it's in when we're straight. And it does that because it's in our interest evolutionarily. If we're out of it and something really important happens, something dangerous or something exciting, and we don't notice, we wouldn't survive. So evolution has built in the ability to um, counteract perturbations in our, our cognitive state. And, um, you know, most of the time we walk around feeling okay. Like if I um, bumped into 
you, probably 97 times out of 100, you'd say, you know, I'm having a good day, which would be like normal, hopefully. Um, but three times out of 100, you might be really low or really high because something terrible or something good happened. Those states are meant to be rare, to indicate bad or good things happening. So when we take drugs, because we realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to deal with the pain of this breakup or the discomfort of going to college, you know, and finding new friends. I can just check out and it'll seem like it's okay. The brain does not go for that. So it counteracts those effects. So if you take um, stimulants to perk up, your brain gets kind of slow. If you take um, sedatives like alcohol to relax, your brain gets kind of uh, jumpy and anxious. If you take opiates to reduce suffering, your brain uh, calls on processes that lead to pain. So that way we come out kind of even. And this is why we're tolerant when we take drugs over and over again. You get tolerant because not because the drug is doing less, but because your brain is doing more. So then yeah. you need the drug just to feel normal. And that is um, when you're dependent on a drug, because for me, smoking weed, nothing was really interesting unless I was high. Even though when I first started smoking, I loved how it made everything rich and sparkly and tinselly. But by the time I was done, you know, everything was bland unless I was completely wasted, you know. And then yeah. when I took the drug away, uh, it stayed bland for a while until it kind of my brain again learned, well, well, this isn't good either. And so it kind of um, in a few months began to bounce back so that now I have at least normal amounts of um of um, sparkle and despair. Right. Yeah. You, you talk about in the book, this idea of the debt of addiction. And I actually want to reference this with a quote you have here in the book. And it says, an addict doesn't drink coffee because she's tired. She's tired because she drinks coffee. Regular drinkers don't have cocktails in order to relax after a rough day. Their day is filled with tension and anxiety because they drink so much. And heroin produces euphoria and blocks pain in a naive user, but addicts can't kick a heroin habit because without it, they are in excruciating pain. This is, I think this is really powerful, you know, this concept of the debt of addiction. Do you have anything else to add to this? Yeah, uh, no, I, well, let me just say um, that what this all means is that whatever we like with that the drug does for us, we lose the capacity to do. And mm -hmm. so this is why I, I sort of sum that up by saying there's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. Because it's almost like you, you're going to have to pay it back. And um, so unfortunately, you can't get high repeatedly. And every person like me knows that you know that i i mean the opiate users we really saw this when the prescription uh writing went down the heroin use went up you know when that squeezed and the fentanyl use i mean there is just 
it's really a dead end because we're just Mm -hmm. trying to get back to normal. And, you know, the only real way to get back to normal, I think, or the only way that's demonstrated to work so far is kind of the long, arduous task of unlearning with support. How does someone become aware of when they've tipped the scale and when they're now struggling with an addiction? What question can someone ask themselves to determine if they might be dependent? Yeah. um, If they enjoy things less without the drugs, then um, that's an indication things might be going south. And I say might be because, you know, it's possible that they enhance enjoyment on a sporadic basis. But what generally happens is that um, our lives get more narrow. So we don't do things that don't include the drug use. And instead of going out to be with friends, I think I'll just sit home and smoke and watch TV or something. So as we're making choices that are um, prioritizing using because it seems like it would be less enjoyable when the drug's not there, um, then that's a, a sign. So I think, you know, if it's icing on the cake, then mm-hmm. that's okay. But if it's the cake, mm-hmm. you know, or even the heel of bread, which is even worse, uh, then, you know, clearly it's a problem. Right. Yeah. You know, I would say drugs and alcohol personally haven't been an issue for me. You know, those aren't my drugs of choice, but of course there are other things we can become addicted to like food or shopping or work. Um, and growing up in, and even in recent years, there have been there've been people in my life who have struggled with substance abuse. And I think one of the reasons why I'm now so passionate about contributing to this conversation is because I have been a witness to the devastating self-destruction, uh, you know, seeing a loved one lose control and it can be extremely heartbreaking to witness. And I think most of us probably know someone struggling with this sort of relentless urge to turn to substance. What would you say, like, how do you, what would you say to a loved one or caregivers of those struggling with addiction? Like, what can they do to effectively support? Yeah, well, I think they can, first of all, uh, do the hard work of showing up. And as I said, I I really understand my parents' um, desire to kind of get away from me. And I understand it, you know, from the, from their perspective, but also from my own. So I think it's tough to um, kind of be there with people. And, um, you know, as they're choosing in the beginning to withdraw and, and use substances instead. But I think the ties and the, um, as many connections as we can have, the better. I do think this is a, you know, the hidden resource actually, just the ties to work people and 
family members and neighbors, you know, the more potentially the better. I also, um, I think that even if you don't have a problem, and maybe especially if you don't struggle, asking the question about whether the drug use or the two glasses of wine is really enhancing your life or not is good because um, for some of us that do struggle, it's hard because we don't see many people at all in the world going through kind of unmedicated. If they're, like you say, if they're not medicating with wine or weed, it might be shopping or, uh, you know, um, social media or other kinds of media. And I think what we, what would benefit maybe all of us is ways of showing up for reality that are um, life affirming rather than than sort of, you know, different kinds of escape mechanisms. I, I think in other words, escape ultimately isn't really possible. And mm -hmm. so we need a, a whole bunch of ways of being there, not through, you know, all the wonderful times only, but really through the, the hard times, you know, side by side in a way. And, um, you know, we've ha I've had to learn that some of those ways because I can't use, you know, I had to go sit in my chair and feel the pain of a breakup or something. But um, I think everybody is struggling and there's not that much out there that's um, real and, and um, I don't know, supporting living, I guess, fully. Yeah. Does that make sense or does that sound wow. too crazy? No, absolutely. And yeah, like I, I love how I think it's Gabor Mate who says, you know, that we these hungry, hungry little ghosts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I find that so interesting. And I, you know, I think we need to look for those contortions that we go through in which we're trying to not be with ourselves for a few hours. I can understand that really well. I, I know I know that discomfort with myself, that desire to want to escape my mind. For me, I, you know, like I said, I, for me, drugs and, and alcohol have never really been an issue, but I might distract myself with work or even shopping. Sometimes I make a, I made a joke recently to a friend that I'm getting a little too expensive for myself lately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I do find that having someone to, to connect with and talk with, I think that that's really helpful. And um, being, you know, having those few people that I can call up and, and have a conversation with and be like, you know, this is what I'm feeling right now. It kind of tames those hungry little ghosts inside of me. Oh, I completely agree. I, and I think the, the difference between calling a friend and, you know, even identifying the ghosts with, with somebody else, you know, um, and, and using, even if it's playing solitaire, let's say by ourselves, which seems like the definition of something innocuous, um, the, the former, the connecting with a friend makes uh, us bigger and stronger. And the latter, you know, is at best a waste of time, um, but at worst also, um, you know, missing 
missing uh, an opportunity. And I think, you know, if we lived 9,000 years, maybe a few more games of solitaire don't hurt, but <laughs> short, life is short. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to, um, like you said, like your nephew said, you know, run toward the storm a little bit. Yeah, see what I love it's that. like, see what it has to show us. Yeah, I like that. I find that uh, I find that movement practices, so things like yoga or even you know exercising, it's a way to run towards that discomfort. I find that it almost trains us to do that. Would you say so as well? I absolutely would, and that's based partly, at least, in neurobiology. So the the same um, sort of circuit that underlies um, escape in a way, or the sort of soothing that drugs provide is uh, also responsible for initiating uh, actions. And uh, so I do think that moving is easier. Now, if it's pouring rain or you're you know, stuck in a homeless shelter or something, you know, there might not be a lot of movement you can do, but, um, and even talking to someone else is more movement than thinking yourself, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that so much. I, I think that's really important, really, really important to highlight in the conversation of addiction. And Judy, as, as a way to wrap today, you know, I, I have to say, I remember the first time I saw your TED Talk, I was thinking to myself, you are such an inspiration for anyone who maybe finds themselves in a dark place, you know, to know it's possible to recover and build an incredible life of meaning and purpose. It's truly so inspiring. And I think the work that you do now and the accomplishments that you've made might seem unremarkable to most addicts. You know, you have a PhD in behavioral neuroscience and you've become an expert. And uh, I want to end today by asking you, what would you say to someone who is struggling to see a better future for themselves? I would say it is possible. And yeah. we don't know what's possible. I would never have imagined the life I have today, I have to say. And I think um, just connect with the mystery of what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And as much as possible, this is what I try to do every day, as much as possible, open myself to what is, first of all, and then um, growth. And, you know, kind of just slowly, not only did I climb out of the hole I was in in my early 20s, but I'm, you know, almost all the time in a much, much better place. So, yeah, I think it's, it's um, I think we don't know what's possible. And we also need, you know, people to show up because uh, we need each other. Mm, I like that. And you are now on a sabbatical. Tell us a little bit more about what projects you're working on this year. Well, in addition to um, looking forward to the um, Trauma and Addictions Conference, I am working yeah. on two books. The first one I hope to finish this fall, which is tentatively titled Why Not Use Drugs? 
Okay. And um, hoping to provide people with a kind of balanced, uh, scientifically based perspective and information that will help them make decisions about their own use um, that are uh, serving their highest good. As I said, I'm not against drugs. I'm, I'm against addiction. And uh, the second one is um, going to take a little longer, but I have loads of notes and I'm very excited to work on it. And it's really around the vulnerable period of adolescent brain development that um, gives rise or primes most addictive disorders. And so I just want to lay that out um, so that we can see either in ourselves or our children or our neighbors or our communities how we might better and more appropriately respond to young people. Mm -hmm. Well, I really look forward to your next book. That sounds amazing. And Judy, I want to thank you so much for bringing your wisdom today. Thank you for being an advocate for this. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elaine. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tawny Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwoods. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I will stand here and shout it out loud.